Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of The Hub Dialogues, the podcast of The Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hello, Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, our regular Friday roundtable, where I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, to kick around some of the issues and ideas in the news, hopefully give you uh, some analysis and insights that uh, you can use to understand uh, this extraordinary moment uh, we're all going through. Guys, on this uh, pod, we've been focusing each week uh, one segment on the Conservative Party leadership race. Uh, We're doing this partly because there's some interesting policy and ideas, but also just frankly that, I don't know, this feels like an important moment in Canadian politics, a moment where one of our big historic mainline parties is now having a contest, a more explicit debate about the merits and demerits of populism, of uh, of uh, kind of pursuing power, at least in the case of Patrick Brown, through um, through responding to the needs and interests of uh, of ethnocultural communities to the Sheree campaign, which is offering up a more traditional standard bearer approach um, to how and why the conservative movement exists in Canada. So Stuart, I want to come to you first. You wrote our weekly roundup that the listeners can get on our website right now, www.thehub.ca. What were some of the big developments that you took away from the last seven days in terms of this contest? Yeah, I, the one thing that actually struck me was that, um, you know, some people may be aware of Matt Iglesias, sort of a left of center um, American columnist. He's always been sort of a wonky policy guy. He wrote a piece for the Washington Post about the housing debate happening in the leadership race. So, you know, the the main point to make here is that it's pretty rare for Canadian politics to get on the radar in the United States. And it is extremely rare for a non-government leadership race um, to get any press at all. Um, So that's kind of cool. Iglesias is kind of a wonk, so it's not totally unsurprising, but he just was saying that, you know, the the argument up here about housing, we have Scott Aitchison talking about being a Yimby and um, Pierre Polyev talking about gatekeepers and promising all these things. In the United States, you know, the sort of Trump-infused debate is against all of these things without any debate. And they're talking about that kind of policy, abolishing the suburbs. It's kind of one of those dumb culture war debates where there's no real policy being discussed. Um, so something maybe to take a little pride in that we are actually having a good debate right now. And it is really interesting. I mean, we're having fun for fun with it in our podcast. Um, but uh, I just thought it was interesting how different the debate is in America. Scott Aitchison's more popular at the Washington Post editorial page than he is in the Conservative Party leadership race. 
Um, I want to take up the housing issue in a minute, but if I can just come back to Rudyard's framing, because I think it was really insightful. We essentially have three different approaches um, represented in this campaign between Polyev, uh, Brown, and Sheree. And you might even add a fourth in the form of Leslie and Lewis's social conservative campaign. Um, I heard this phrase recently, and I thought it really applied to this race. Polyev is running a broadcast type of campaign where it's trying to build as a big audience as possible. Sheree is running a, a kind of elite top-down campaign. He's already raised a million dollars, which speaks to his resonance with a particular part of Canadian society. And Brown is running a narrowcast campaign. Nobody has been able to see him or find him or ask questions. But every once in a while, we hear a spilling out of these very... Um, narrow cast events that he's doing, some of these promises that Rudyard mentioned earlier, including uh, removing the Tamil Tigers from Canada's uh, list of terrorist organizations. So um, we really do have this kind of interesting dynamic where we have three or four different approaches or conceptions of how to do politics. And, you know, the outcome of this race will uh, provide some insight about their kind of relative merits. I would just say, you know, if I was a betting person at this stage, there is just so much power in the kind of energy and momentum that Polyev is, is creating in this broadcast type of campaign. And even if Polyev, or pardon me, Brown is selling a lot of memberships in the Nepalese community and the Tamil community and, and so on, it, you know, I don't know, guys, uh, momentum, it seems to me, trumps um, that kind of narrow mm -hmm. casting, um, you know, more often than not. Yeah, let me uh, see if I can get into a little bit of trouble here. Um, I, I There's just something about the Brown campaign that's just, just so jaw-dropping. And I want to kind of draw an analogy for you guys to the United States. And it, it, it's not specific to the Republicans, the Democrats, or an independent. But could you imagine a mainline U.S. political figure openly talking to the media about trading America's national interests to, to – uh, placate and supplicate to some narrow sectarian um, interests of a, of a particular group in the, in the United States. Yes, sure, this happens, you know, at the the micro level of, Canadian, of U.S. politics. There's all kinds of trade-offs between different ethno-cultural communities. But here you have a national, someone aspiring to be the national leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, basically saying Canada has no foreign policy. We simply have a series of ethnocultural groups who will determine, um, I guess, where Canadian troops are going to go, uh, what economic free trade agreements Canada will enter into or not. It is, it, to me, it represents a kind of a, a real low point in our politics, guys, where, where you can actually have somebody basically saying, Maybe calling it what it is, maybe saying, look, we are a postmodern state, <laughs> to paraphrase the prime minister. There is no there there. Um, so we might as well just, you know, carve up the national interest to, you know, whatever group that has whatever grudge or, you know, specific complaint. And look, I, I don't want to underestimate the extent to which some people in those communities just feel so passionately about these issues. But man, guys, wither Canada. <laughs> Am I wrong about this, uh, no, David? Let me just jump in for one second here. David Mulroney, who we're going to have on our, our regular podcast in the coming weeks, has, has raised this point a lot in the past, that we've, in effect, as a G7 country, outsourced our foreign policy to a kind of diaspora politics 
and that foreign policy in Canada has become an extension of domestic politics, as opposed to, as you say, Rudyard, having a clear set of national interests and projecting those national interests globally. So this isn't new. It's just that Brown is taking it to kind of an extraordinary level, making it, in effect, the kind of fulcrum of his leadership campaign, where we're every once in a while we're hearing through ethnic media these extraordinary promises like de delisting the Tamil Tigers or or promising you know new immigration offices in you know small parts of Nepal or elsewhere based on this you know kind of chessboard like politics where you sort of move pieces around and in the aggregate you can win and and you know not only is it bad uh, for all of the reasons you describe I just don't think it can compete with the kind of energy that we saw this week with the Polyev campaign. You know, in the city of Toronto, downtown Toronto, more than a thousand people at this steam whistle event. That is, there's something going on here, guys. We've been kind of tracking it for a while now. But as I said in my, in my earlier comments, it seems to me this broadcast form of politics is just more powerful than a Brown's narrow cast politics and Trey's elite top-down politics where you might be able to raise a lot of money um, but that doesn't translate into votes. Rich people only get one vote too. Yeah. So Stuart, we, we saw some policies starting to emerge on the campaign trail this week. You've summarized that uh, helpfully in your, your weekly roundup for, for Hub readers. Just give us a taste of, um, of what caught your eye in terms of uh, some specific kind of policy suggestions that are now coming out to address some big issues, including let's get into housing, guys, because that is the hot political issue. And it's interesting to see the Conservative Party of Canada kind of going in with both feet into, frankly, an issue that really has not factored in its, even I would say, its top 10 list of electoral priorities over the last number of election campaigns. Yeah, the, the new one from Polyev is interesting because it is kind of that, it's the kind of policy that was getting attention south of the border, which is he's using the federal government to punish municipalities who don't play ball on housing. And that, you know, we've talked a little bit in, in the past about how that is, this isn't really federal jurisdiction, but they do have some ability to, you know, push people around if they want to, because they do offer money for general infrastructure. And um, Polyev's plan, um, it, it's going to go after that actual building of things, but also going into transit infrastructure too. So um, he's going to tie it to that and say, if you don't build high density housing around these infrastructure projects, we're just not going to give you the money. Um, so it's something that's been kind of offered up there. Um, you know, it was discussed during the last election. Um, this one is, uh, you know, it's stronger. Um, and of course, the rhetoric around it is a little stronger because that's kind of Polyev's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is really interesting. These are not traditionally conservative um, policies. The traditional wisdom has always been that people like their homes to have a lot of value and older people tend to vote. And those are the people who want their homes to have value. And um, I think that, you know, the polling shows this isn't as big of a risk as it used to be, but it's still a bit of a risk for Polyev yeah. and others. But Sean, what about, you know, market forces? That used to be, you know, the, the go-to for the conservative party. Hey, these things will solve themselves through the invisible hand of the market. And I guess the swipe that I might take at Polyev's proposal, and in fact, a lot of proposals around housing is, you know, some interesting research out from, I believe it was Bank of Montreal this, this week saying, you know, Canada doesn't really have a supply crisis in housing. If you look at our, our units, uh, you know, on a per capita basis, they line up with a lot of other pure jurisdictions in in Europe uh, and elsewhere. And in fact, 
what we have is a demand problem. We have too many people wanting, you know, too much housing. And it's partly cultural because we've had this incredible explosion now over almost 20 years of ever increasing housing prices. We also, duh, have like the lowest interest rates in 3000 years that might have to do <laughs> something, John, maybe just something to do with why people want to buy a lot of houses. Yeah, I would say a couple of things in response to that. First of all, this debate about the relative role of supply and demand has played out on the pages of the hub. So people who are interested in these questions can find, you know, we've published dozens of articles and opinion pieces and so on over the past 12 months on the, the housing question. The, the other thing I would say, guys, is, um, you know, we're interested in ideas at the hub. We're interested in kind of the underlying philosophy behind policy ideas. I think one thing we're going to see play out in the next little while is... Um, on one hand, the kind of political fecundity of the, this position on the part of Polyev and Atchison and others in terms of using the federal spending power to get municipalities to do what they want when it comes to housing. On the other hand, a, a core part of the kind of conservative worldview is decentralization and subsidiarity. You know, so if municipalities want to have stupid land use rules in order to, you know, protect the interests of local homeowners, you know, is it the role of Ottawa to say, no, you know, you, your democratic process has led to that outcome, but we want a different outcome and we're going to tie federal dollars to it on different issues like health care and, and, and so on. The conservative position has been no, no strings attached, you know, fill your boots, do what you want. Um, so I hope at the hub in the coming um, days and weeks, we can actually be a platform for, you know, the question of supply versus demand, but also the kind of underlying philosophy behind a, an Ottawa knows best versus a subsidiarity mm -hmm. approach on this on this question. Stuart, let's just round off this portion of the show by talking about the Shrey campaign, because they did something um, that I really liked this week, which was to come out and flag the idea that, come on, we got to solve Canada's, and talk about a supply problem, our lack of, of healthcare, timely surgeries, diagnostics, treatments by, in a responsible way, following all kinds of great precedence and examples and, you know, lovely Scandinavian countries that are anything but, you know, knuckle-dragging, jackbooted, you know, conservative-led uh, nations, we're going to have to introduce some market forces, some private capital into the delivery of healthcare. A, how courageous do you think this was? B, I was kind of interested to see, and maybe it's hopeful, that there wasn't the usual kind of third-rail moment of mass electrocution <laughs> to campaigns and political figures when they float these ideas and has the pandemic it's something i've written about in the hub has a pandemic kind of woken canadians up to the fact that we have a, a capacity crisis and it's not enough just to turn to heavily indebted governments to try to solve it yeah it's absolutely fascinating um Shrey is suggesting you know more private delivery of healthcare, and which could mean surgeries um, being paid for by public dollars at private clinics. And that you're right. I mean, I, I have a lot of theories about this because we, um, you're right, the pandemic is what Charest said is the big reason we should be changing our thinking on this. Um, but he's from Quebec, where they have been doing a lot more of this since uh, Supreme Court ruling in 2005, which allowed them to do that. Um, but you know, take your mind back to the previous federal election where, you know, Aaron O'Toole stepped on this third rail and it was didn't go well for him. Um, it was a troublesome couple of days, even though the liberals um, were accused of um, pushing out misinformation on Twitter um, at that time. So even that part of the scandal couldn't overtake 
the private healthcare part of the scandal. So I, you know, if I was being a little mischievous, I would say that Sheree is generally the candidate of the media um, and they're going to give him a break on a lot of things because the dislike of Polyev is so strong that I think you're going to see a lot of benefit of the doubt going Sheree's way. Um, so just quickly, I will... My other theory, um, I'll just quickly tell you, is that I think maybe Canadians are non-ideological on the substance of this. Maybe not when you ask them about public versus private, but when you ask them, hey, you know, BC spent tens of billions of dollars clearing their surgical backlog with private clinics. Was that a good idea? They'll say, yeah, of course, that was a good idea. They had to do something. Um, but if you ask them more abstract kind of private versus public issues, they tend to lean towards public. May I just weigh in for one second? Um, I yeah. would just say that I think... Um, Rudyard, like you, the politicians are behind the public on this, that there's actually kind of growing support to revisit our, you know, decades old single payer Medicare model. Um, but that's especially strong, I think, amongst conservative party members. And so this is, seems to me is the first attempt, real attempt on the part of the Sheree campaign to present a conservative policy proposal that is going to resonate with, the, with conservative members. Some of the other things they've said to date are kind of technocratic. You know, I, I don't, they're not necessarily bad ideas, but they're not going to galvanize conservative voters. But to be the first in the pool on private health care, I think is the most conservative thing he's done to date and probably will help him in this leadership, even if, even if it's a problem down the road, uh, as Stuart says. Awesome. Uh, we're going to come right back after a short break here and talk about Elon Musk and his bid to take over Twitter. What does Stuart think as one of those verified, privileged, blue-starred journalists on Twitter? Does, do you think the evil Mr. Musk is going to come in and kick over his playhouse? We're going to have Stuart weigh in on that right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Welcome back. You're listening to the Hub Friday Roundup. This is our weekly program, digging into the big issues and ideas in the news with Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. Guys, I want to spend the back half of the show just talking about this wonderful kind of moment that we're all living through, uh, courtesy of Elon Musk. Um, basically, an attempt that's gotten more serious this week to affect a hostile takeover of Twitter in the name of uh, preserving and enhancing uh, free speech uh, in American and, let's face it, Twitter is a global platform kind of around the world. So Stuart, before the break, I was kind of joking that you, uh, amongst the group of us, are Twitter verified. You've got that little blue star as a, a journalist. And um, what is your sense of this? A lot of your colleagues in the media, genuine hand-wringing here, really uh, surprising, at least in my view, immediate and visceral negative reaction 
to the idea of the world's largest man, uh, world's largest man, the world's wealthiest man, uh, taking over this platform and potentially investing. I think the number right now, the offer on the table is something in the order of $46 billion to acquire Twitter. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I should put my cards on the table and say that I hate Twitter and I've always hated Twitter. And I'm kind of, I, I pop in once a day and just maybe tweet something. Um, and that's partly because I find it very negative and I don't think that's a good thing to put into your um, bloodstream every day. Um, but the second thing is that Journalists and you know political types—they um, vastly overrate the power of Twitter. Um, it is like sort of a good networking thing for journalists. It might help your career a little bit, but if you've ever seen the actual stats of what happens on Twitter, it doesn't drive any traffic to your stories. Um, people tend to retweet, you know, reading without reading things. That's more kind of tribal um, associations than any kind of substance. Um, so I've always kind of thought, you know, Twitter's fine. Um, I use it for chatting to friends sometimes, uh, but that's about it. Um, where the real power is, is like Facebook, where everybody else is. Face Twitter's user base is pretty low and it is probably more kind of powerful users, people who are connected and people who are, um, you know, in politics and government and business. But um, that I will first of all say that, that most of the discussion around this is because journalists are addicted to Twitter and they don't want it to change because they like it so much. And it's the instant feedback for everything they do. So um, it is just a very, very um, tantalizing thing to write something and then get instant feedback on your opinion or whatever. Um, so all that to say that I think most of what Elon Musk is saying is fine. Um, but I would also question the idea, you know, I'm not a full libertarian on this, but the idea that Twitter is the public square, I think is not entirely true. Um, I think it's, you know, become something of a, uh, you know, democratic discussion venue, but uh, it's one among many. Um, and it is still a private company that can choose to do what it wants. Sean, I want to uh, come to you and just uh, I'll give you my take on this, but I want to hear yours first, and maybe the a bit of the context of this this framing about free speech, because uh, Musk has been very uh, forthright about this, that he feels that there's a free speech crisis going on in society. He thinks that Twitter is part of the problem. Not that necessarily I subscribe to this view, but you could argue that Twitter has actually done a lot, frankly, to clean itself up, that there are these blue-starred people that they've made the effort to find, like Stuart, frankly, who post content that's generally uh, reading Stuart's tweets fact-based and um, you know, is, is a contribution to a public conversation where there is so much disinformation, so much speculation, uh, so much manipulation and sure Twitter does manipulate. It does um, tribalize, but it's a company that has made an effort to, in some ways to have some responsibility about the type of content that exists on the site, maybe in ways that other platforms, frankly, have not. And could that be a risk if you have a, a more laissez-faire, anything goes, free speech first approach that Elon Musk would bring? Maybe. Um, you know, it seems to me it, it depends what you think the biggest, bigger problem is. Is it is it disinformation or is it intellectual conformity and kind of, you know, um, barriers to heterodox thinking, and those barriers can come in the form of, of actual barriers, um, or it can, can come in the form of kind of social and cultural norms that make it challenging for people to express themselves and be frank about the way they think and, and see the world. And 
I think on balance, guys, even though the internet has brought an explosion of content and, and ideas and so on, I still think, you know, if you've followed politics over the past and public policy over the past two years of the pandemic, I still think conformity is a bigger problem than disinformation. I mean, think of, uh, we talked last week, guys, about inflation. You know, <laughs> every blue check mark said that this was transitory, um, that there was nothing to worry about. And now <laughs> Tiff Macklem says, oh, sorry, there is something to worry about. In fact, we might even have to raise rates by another um, 75 basis points in, in the spring. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying I'm, I'm kind of disposed to Musk's view on these things that uh, we're better off with Twitter and these other platforms being a place for heterodoxy as opposed to spending its time and resources trying to protect against disinformation. Yeah. Let me try a different argument. I'll come to you, Stuart, on this. Because at the Hub, we are kind of running um, an entity. It's a charity. We're trying to provide, you know, information to a broad segment of people curated professionally by journalists like you, Stuart. And as the executive director, you know, I struggle at times to ensure that, you know, we have a variety of different funders, that those funders are removed from the content, that we have a firm line between, you know, what I do as executive director and what you do, Stuart, as editor in chief. I guess what I worry about here is, you know, we're seeing this trend, a kind of a late Victorian era trend of billionaires buying media. And I, I just think it's a little bit naive to think, well, oh, they're just doing it for free speech reasons, right? Bezos owns the Washington Post just to be, you know, a good citizen. Um, Amiar, I forget his name, Pierre Amiar, you know, has his own sets of, you know, holdings and properties. Um, we've got basically the Thompsons, the richest family in Canada, owning the Globe and Mail. You know, that's great, but understand there, there are collateral benefits. And, you know, we all know what those are, which is probably the PMO and other people pick up the phone when you call and you're not calling from the Globe and Mail, you're calling from, you know, Thompson headquarters because there's that understanding that, hey, I've got this business, but I also have these parallel media entities that, yes, there are editors, but also that I can, you know, I am the owner. Um, What's your view on that, Stuart? I mean, is there a legitimate concern here that it's just another phase of the oligarchical uh, plutocracy moment that a lot of our society seems to be falling into, where in this case, the world's richest man is going to own one of the largest social media platforms? Yeah, it is. It's one of, I'm not the first to point this out, but it is really interesting to note the difference when Bezos bought the Washington Post and this kind of uh, freak out over Elon Musk. Um, so I think, you know, if you're the right billionaire, you're, you're fine these days. Um, it is, that is a very interesting thing though, because media still retains some power and it's not what it used to be. I remember when I started in journalism, talking to uh, one of my bosses at a newspaper and he said, you know, I probably shouldn't do this, but every time I have a, like a problem with my kid at school, I always use my work email. Um, just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just to like make the point, like, I'm not going to do anything, but it's just, they see it. Um, and you know, that was just a funny story, but I mean, that kind of stuff does go on where you have this very, especially like a local newspaper in a big city, you do have a certain amount of power, especially if you're the only one. Um, and 
I have often thought that journalists at, you know, just everyday journalists who are just working every day um, on their stories and just kind of going about their business, don't think about this stuff enough um, about their own ethical considerations. Um, and, you know, you know, should you do a speech for this person when you might end up covering them? Or if you're thinking about leaving journalism going into politics, how should you traverse that? Because there is a perception problem. Um, so this stuff doesn't get talked about enough. I don't have a lot of problems with Elon Musk owning Twitter because I don't think Twitter really matters that much. And I don't think that it's like a newspaper um, where you can command that same editorial power. Um, so it is interesting. And one thing I'll just add to this just quickly is that it has probably revealed more about the current state of journalists and journalism that, um, you know, free speech used to be a big thing in journalism. Uh, it is almost like a code word now for you're like a screaming right winger. Um, so mm -hmm. I remember when I was in J school 10, 12 years ago, we would kind of reluctantly look at Ezra Levant getting dragged into these human rights tribunals and say, you know, um, as much as he's like an unsympathetic figure sometimes, this seems like a really bad process. And anybody who works in the news should be worried about it because it's, you know, kind of a kangaroo court. Uh, nowadays, that just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have people defending him on free speech grounds. Um, and you wouldn't have journalists who are sort of center left in their own politics, kind of realizing that you have to sometimes support unsavory figures to, you know, build up these higher principles. So I think there's definitely something there. And, you know, if you watch the reaction of journalists on Twitter, they're kind of, I think, telling on themselves. Ton of insight. So, yeah, let's give you the last word on this, um, Sean, the last word for the show. And I just, I want to challenge you a little bit because, you know, conservatives should care about concentrations of power. I mean, if you look historically at, you know, the origins of conservative thought, you go back to the Scottish Enlightenment or something, there, there was a lot of concern about the extent to which the concentration of power in society anywhere was seen as uh, economically inefficient and more important, likely um, a negative outcome for our collect our individual kind of liberties. Um, so is there a kind of rush here to give Elon Musk a pass because, hey, he's one of us, you know, as Stuart said, he's, he's vocal about free speech. So, you know, go ahead and let's not understand that, you know, conservatives also need to think and figure out ways to ensure that you know, competition's a good thing. And it's not just in the economy. We want a competition of ideas. Mm -hmm. We want a competition of, of places and spaces where we as sovereign individuals can express ourselves, be challenged, and hopefully come up with, you know, better thinking and, you know, better ideas. Yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, the, the longer answer is for those listeners interested in the history of modern Canadian conservatism, I'd encourage ah. you to check out my uh, long form essay at the hub uh, published on uh, Friday, April 22nd, um, that, that builds on a recent episode of the hub dialogues podcast that we did with Matt, Matthew Coninetti, an American conservative who has a new book out, um, trying to document and understand the hundred years of the, of American conservatism. But, um, just directly to your point, I, I think that's right, Rudyard. Um, and, and I, I do think that, um, conservatives need to be careful not to, um, trade their principles for particular outcomes, right? Um, as you say, if the principle is competition, you can't set those principles aside because Elon Musk may, may be one of us, so to speak. 
Um, conservatives have raised major concerns in recent years, I think rightly, that Amazon is using its power to, in effect, influence, thing, influence the publishing industry by um, choosing which books are sold on its platform and, in turn, sending a signal to publishers not to publish certain books on certain, on certain, certain topics. So I, I think that's exactly right. And, but I think it's a slightly different conversation than this one about whether the principal concern around issues of the internet ought to be about disinformation, which seems to be the kind of prevailing view in Ottawa. We're having this conversation at a time, for instance, when the Trudeau government is introducing new legislation to, to in effect, regulate the internet. Or if we need to keep the internet open to the, to, um, the competition of ideas that you describe and actually preference um, challenges to our intellectual orthodoxy. And it seems to me that's really at the kind of core of what we're trying to do at the hub is introduce new voices and new ideas. And, and um, you know, uh, that for me remains um, fundamental um, as we kind of navigate this interesting new world that, um, that uh, you and, and, and Stuart have described today. Well, thanks, guys. As always, a fascinating discussion. And, you know, for listeners, we can we do this each and every Friday. We'll give you a kind of update of uh, the conservative leadership on the first half of the show or somewhere in the show for sure. And then dig into kind of one issue in the news that we think has um, some interest and relevance uh, to you as a listener and hopefully as a reader of the hub. So Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. Thanks, guys, for coming on the program. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll talk to you again next Friday. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, topic and idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.